Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll discuss the resignation of the Environment Agency's chief executive, Sir James Bevan. We'll look at why Scotland and Wales are less than happy about Westminster's plans to bin hundreds of green laws. We'll check out what's going on at the Climate COP in Egypt. Then Jamie and I are going to examine the government's unlawful net zero strategy. After that, Simon and Alice will be along to talk about the plans, such as they are, to tackle the risks from forever chemicals. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Rachel Savage and today I'm here with Jamie Carpenter and Pippa Neal. Our first story of this Big Green News section is about the upcoming departure of the Environment Agency's Chief Executive, Sir James Bevan. Rumours about his exit had been circulating for a while, but on the 31st of October he announced his departure to staff, saying that his last day would be March next year, on the 31st again. The search for his successor had began at the same time, and a quick look at the job ad shows that Def is not especially looking to hire someone with a big vision for the environment. In fact, experience or desire for environmental protection at large barely features. Uh, Jamie, can you tell us a little bit more about the ad and the candidate specification that goes with it? Yeah, well, I, well, I guess um, there'll, there'll be a lot of people who are pinning a lot of hopes on the, the appointment of the next chief executive. And the the agency will, will soon have to sort of a new leadership with Alan Lovell, who's recently appointed, replaced um, Emma, Emma Howe Boyd as chair so so I, I i imagine a lot of people will be hoping for like a, a new approach new leadership mm. and um i think i think looking at the the job ad it, it does it does seem to indicate to me at least that we might end up with another james bevan sort of figure in what uh, way well I, th- I think i think it's partly because the of what the agency is and a, a big part of that is is the the responsibility to deliver this this massive capital program of flood flood related works yeah. mm. um so so that the, so that the, it's quite clear that they're, they're looking for someone with a demonstrable track record of successful leadership within a large and complex delivery organization where regulation has been a feature so i think every, anyone i think even now and again sort of see people on twitter saying oh well Fergal Sharkey should go for it, someone like that. Or, mm-hmm. uh, and I, th- I think this, this, unfortunately for those, <laughs> those, those people, it's just maybe that's not going to happen. Yes, um, I agree. Mm. And, and as you say, I think I think the, the, there are kind of lots of requirements. They're saying that candidates must demonstrate a commitment to public service and an and interest in environmental issues. But um, mm. I think the it looks to me more like that they're they're, they're seeking someone that can manage a a body with. Big responsibilities in terms of delivering a a capital program, rather than someone maybe that that is is a, an environmentalist. Yeah, I mean there there are nine bullet points on the um, candidate specification, and and they're all about you know having to run a huge and large and complex organisation, which you would expect given that it is that. But of the nine bullet points in the skill and experience section, it's the ninth, and it's almost apologetic. It's like, oh, by the way, if you have an interest in the environment, that'd be quite handy. Um, It's kind of in line, as you say, with the appointment of Alan uh, Lovell, whose background is kind of construction and attempts to turn around failing companies. And again, at his pre-appointment hearing, he seemed to be surprised to be asked what his vision was for the environment. Um, And he didn't have an answer for that, which was a bit disappointing for a lot of people, but um, so. But back to Bevan, Pippa. What kind of legacy do you think he's he's leaving behind? Well, I think recently um, James Bevan forced the controversial pay offer onto mm. Environment Agency staff. And yeah, which was rejected, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, this follows years of pay freezes across all public bo- bodies, um, and agency staff were offered a two percent rise plus three hundred forty-five pounds, which yeah was rejected, as yeah. Rachel said, um, from all unions. 
Um, and ends as previously we've talked about on the podcast that low salaries coupled with rising costs of living has led to an exodus of staff from the environment agency and mm. um, deep cuts in the expertise and it's creating making recruitment a nightmare. Um, so yeah, I would say that's kind of a big part of his legacy leaving. Yeah, yeah absolutely. A lot of the, the whistleblowers that talk to us say that they can't do their jobs properly because of you know for the reasons that you outline in budget cuts and the funds that they do have are directed some say to sort of deskbound roles so they can't do the sort of frontline enforcement and things like that um but there's there's quite a lot of devastating it's a bit of a devastating legacy really i'm not going to say that it's all his fault i'm sure it's not and it's it's come from his uh, predecessors as well um but but what do you think uh, jamie have you got anything to add to that well, well yeah i mean i, I was kind of thinking no we were going to talk about this what, what what would we what would i say is is being notable or distinctive about sir james Evans' leadership mm-hmm. and i think i think there are a few things i mean i think he's he has used his position to highlight kind of future risks or threats that that, that need to be higher on the agenda, and mm-hmm. I think I think he's been quite effective in doing that. So he's talked about things like um, the jaws of death scenario, where sort of water water supply is going to sort of um, not not kind of keep up with demand for it, and um, I think I think that that's that's a kind of a key that's an important part of the the role of the EA chief executive. And I think that's what that is mentioned in the in the job job spec of something that they they're looking for. And I think he's he has been seeking to use his position to kind of put those things on the radar. I think I think the the, the other things he's um he's he's been quite quite clear about the fact. I think Emma Howell Boyd was as well that, that they they didn't feel that the environment agency had the resources it needs to do the job properly um so the kind of message that you get the environment you pay for is something that you'd have heard from mm. james bevan and i think the other thing is this this thing around um a couple of times he's spoken as, as, as using brexit as an opportunity to change the way that we we regulate for the environment so he's talked about um the uh water framework directive and i recently gave this kind of um snog marry avoid speech where he said that he's <laughs> Repeal the floods directive, reform the water framework directive, and keep the water, the bathing water directive. Yes, yeah. On the resources, it's only been in fairly recent years that they've put their hands up and said that they can't, they haven't got the the the, the enough resources to do their roles. I think it's. I mean, I don't want to put a, a, a year on it, but it's fairly recent when actually the the budget's been chopped for a long time. So I, I agree with you, but I do think they could have said that a bit earlier before it got to, got to this yeah, point. I think it's kind of a bit un. I think I, I think it's a bit uncomfortable as well because it, it seems to be it works both for DEFRA and the Environment Agency for for DEFRA to kind of almost pin problems sort of let the Environment Agency get the heat for some of the environmental problems or failings that are arising and also mm. it kind of works for the EA to say well actually it's because DEFRA aren't giving us enough money so yeah. it kind of works for both parties and I think I think really it'd be great if we had someone come in that just wants to is is, is prepared to shake up that that status quo and yeah less buck passing and more more work on the ground, yeah. So, I mean, there have also been some big wins in terms of uh, big prosecutions against polluters, but I think, as we mentioned, enforcement action has, has dropped off at the same time. So it's, you know, balancing it up, it doesn't look like a good picture. But it would be great to get Sir James Bevan on the Eco Chamber. So we'd like to invite him on because it would be great to talk about his legacy because I'm sure there will be a lot of uh, uh, successes that we probably haven't talked about um, a great deal that he could then enlighten us about. And that would be great. If you're listening, James, Sir James, please do. (laughs) We've been asking for an interview for some time um, uh, for the end support generally, um, but it would be great if you could come on the Eco Chamber. I'd better move on. Our second story is about those green EU-derived laws again. Uh, in a nutshell, it was thought that there are around 570 environment-related laws that originated as EU legislation 
on the UK statute books and the government plans to bin them. Well, because, because Brexit uh, and because deregulation is good, regardless of the rules in question, or at least that seems to be the theory behind many of the Conservatives being so keen to get rid of them. And we've chanted on about this a lot on the eco chamber, and there are uh, lots of articles on the energyreport.com too. Um, but there have been two interesting developments in this area. So let's get to those. The first is related to just how many laws there might be waiting to be lobbed onto the bonfire. Pippa, can you can you fill us in? Yeah, so last week the Financial Times reported that ministers in conjunction with the National Archives had discovered an additional 1,400 pieces of EU law. whoops. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this would bring the total to 3,800. But when I spoke to Ruth Chambers from Greener UK about this, she told us that this still could be an underestimate. Um, And it's likely, you know, that there's plenty more. She said, you know, this is a mystery to all of us and just sort of highlighted that, not only does this, it just shows that even the task of simply identifying the laws is much bigger than government thought, let alone mm. repealing and reviewing them all. Yeah. Do you, was there any idea about how that happens? How there can just be just this kind of zombie legislation sitting around that people, are they even aware of it? Is anybody taking any heed of it? I don't actually know. <laughs> no, I know. I don't think any, many people know. Uh, Jamie, can you shine a light on that at all? Maybe they're not zombies; they're kind of ghosts or something, and you can't see them. I don't know that yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 um it's it's amazing that we're 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 kind of sitting here in the December twenty twenty three is the date when the, these things are going to be repealed, <laughs> and we actually don't know how many pieces of retained law actually exist. Mm. Seems not not a great place to be. It's not impressive, is it? Not really. Not very impressive. Um, okay, well, we'll have to revisit that because that just it's it's bamboozling all of us. Um, this, but there has been another development, and I think this is this is pretty interesting. Um, so Westminster is obviously really, really keen to get rid of an undetermined number of green laws, but there could be a couple of very powerful institutions that that uh, can stymie this process. Jamie, can you shine some light on that one? Yes. So um, the the Scottish Commonwealth governments aren't um, particularly impressed by the plans, so they, they they've recommended their parliaments withhold consent for the Brexit Freedoms Bill um, on, on the grounds that it is constitutionally unacceptable and, and the speed at which the, the overhaul is being pursued is nothing short of reckless. That's their words, not mine. Um, <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, it, in effect, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that they can block the, the bill, but it's um, kind of a symbolic move that, that, that kind of shows quite how un- unhappy they, they are about it. And, it, and I, I think some of the some of their concerns mirror those raised by by green groups. So, so this idea that, that having a, a rushed sunset date means that there's, a, there's an unacceptable risk that, that important laws just just simply drop off the statute book. Um, so, so the, 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 that's the sort of things that we, we've heard from from the likes of Green the UK. Um, but there's also kind of a devolution aspect where where there's concern that the bill means that there are some powers that could be exercised by UK government ministers in, in, in devolved areas um, without the consent of the Welsh or Scottish ministers. So that that's another kind of particular area of concern for them. But so they don't have the power to kill the bill, they just have the power to no, make no. it awkward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, the whole issue seems to be a giant waste of time and effort that should be spent entirely on getting our environment on the path to recovery. But uh, as it is, we're going to be arguing about how many laws there are, what they relate to, and who's for it and who's against it for for a long time, which just seems a little bit ridiculous. Um, Speaking of extended negotiations, our next story is about the climate conference in Egypt, known as COP27, 
One of the big themes of the event is loss and damage. Some want to finance facility setup so that countries that have caused the most climate damage and benefited from doing so in terms of economic growth can pay damages to countries that are feeling the worst impacts of climate change and, more often than not, have con- contributed a very small portion of total greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but what is, I mean, that all sounds very good and sounds very fair, but what um, obstacles are in the way of this, uh, Pippa? So I think it's quite interesting that this is the first time since the UN Climate Convention that parties agreed to introduce loss and damage mm-hmm. on the agenda. So that obviously is quite significant. And so far, I think so. the EU has said it's open to discuss discussing such a fund um, along with the US, but they're kind of all refusing an outcome that could make wealthier nations liable to pay for climate-related damage, mm-hmm. um, especially like there's specific concerns around that it could lead to a wave of lawsuits by developing countries as well as domestic stakeholders against um, wealthier nations. Yeah. John Kerry said that it's a well-known fact that the US and many other countries will not establish some sort of legal structure that is tied to compensation or liability. So it's interesting that these discussions are happening, but I think what they actually look like is mm. is going to be quite interesting. Um, I saw today as well that um, there's a G7 plan dubbed the Global Shield that's been introduced, which some people are saying could be the kind of com- like meet in the middle point of this, which is like where where there would be funding to support impacted countries. Um, but there's kind of some countries and campaigners have been cautious that this could just replace the loss and damage deal. Um, and it, the focus is just on insurance and insurance premiums rather than actually offering concrete help. Right. Insurance, that seems like a, a case of bolting the stable door quite some time after the, the horses have, uh, have vanished. Jim, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, I, th- I think loss and damage is a really interesting area. So there was um, quite angry at the Daily Mail the other other week, which is something that happens quite frequently. But they, they, <laughs> they, they put a, um, a story in the front page about, um, and, and they had a really, really big go at Ed Miliband for, for backing loss and damage payments saying mm-hmm. so and their kind of argument was that these can't be they can't be justified at a time of cost of living crisis at home so we, we can't be we can't be helping these desperate countries that are really really on the front line of the climate emergency um mm-hmm. and i think so but, but i think that there's there's a kind of i guess that's a kind of argument that, that some people might make about foreign aid but i think the, the, the kind of really important thing about these loss and damage payments is that um developing nations didn't didn't cause a climate emergency and mm-hmm. the, the payments are really important because we we need to create trust that that's needed for for combined global action so so it's a really important agenda i think that as people was saying that there there's not enough money forthcoming there was a deal back in 2009 that, that 100 billion dollars a year of climate funding would be provided to developing nations and we're, we're still that was by 2020 we've missed it we're still not still not there yet mm. so it's um and and it's really um yeah it's gonna it sounds like it's a, a big sticking point at the moment in in egypt and even well i don't know equally alarming i guess is the idea that limiting warming to 1.5 degrees by 2100 might be um also at risk yeah yeah exactly so so there, there's um i mean i think i think if you if you, if you remember back to cop 26 in glasgow that the current the, one of the key Outcomes as that was was it was an agreement to keep the one point five degrees target alive, um, but there there are, there are kind of reports of concerns from senior figures at, in Egypt that there, there may be some backsliding on the one point five degree goal. Some some parties are apparently 
pushing for a return to the, the kind of language of the Paris Agreement, which, which centers on well below two degrees um, rather than the 1.5 degrees. So, so in effect, it removes that emphasis. So um, I think that there, there are there, there are kind of growing concerns about that and whether whether the Egyptian presidency is able to to find some common ground in order to, to kind of find a path that people are happy with is is going to be really interesting to to see so mm. watch this watch this space I guess yeah and meanwhile a third of Pakistan is is reported to be underwater and that's just one of the many countries suffering at the moment so I think you know urgency is key and I hope they get to some kind of conclusions uh, but we can revisit that in our next episode when we will have uh, we'll know all about the outcomes from the cop um, but for now that brings us to the end of our big green news section Uh, next up, we have our deep dive section. In this episode, Jamie and I are looking at the government's net zero strategy, which was labelled unlawful by the High Court in July. The government has said recently that it will not appeal the ruling, which is a bit of a, a tacit admission that it's probably not up to scratch. Um, a number of connected legal challenges um, brought by Client Earth, Friends of the Earth and the Good Law Project argued that the strategy breaches the Climate Change Act because it isn't in line with the legally binding carbon budgets that are set out in the legislation. Uh, the UK's plans to hit net zero carbon by 2050 would fall short of the sixth carbon budget by around 5%, they said. Uh, but the judge did rule that the um, the plan itself was ultimately unlawful, but its its ruling was a little bit more uh, nuanced than that. Jamie, can you unpick it for us? I'll, I'll have a go. <laughs> can you try? <laughs> I'll Please. really try. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really, I mean, it's, I think rulings are, people often say that rulings are, are kind of landmark rulings or historic and I think in this case, this one is genuinely landmark. It has it has really big implications, and there's and we can see from our own analytics that it's generated a really really big amount of interest. Mm. So, um, and I, I, th- I think it's worth just to start off with by by saying that the the um, the people that sought to challenge the net zero strategy didn't want to quash the strategy itself. That no. they they kind of agreed that it was commendable in its ambition, and yeah. and I think there's comp- most people. Think that the 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 document's really comprehensive and rich in detail, but but it ultimately it it failed to to pass the legal standard. So, what were the elements that the the judge picked out then? Um, it was it was it to do with approval of the strategy, or what was in the strategy, or policies underpinning it, or all of the above. What was the what was the main issue that the judge? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of all it all hinged around the the, the Climate Change Act, mm-hmm. which which um, goes back to. Um, 2008 and and specifically um sections 13 and 14 of the of the act so you really have researched this this, yeah so so um basically the 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 ruling found that greg hans who the minister for business energy and industrial strategy was responsible at the time for signing off the net zero strategy he didn't have the legally required information on how carbon budgets would be met Mm -hmm. and and but he never nevertheless approved the strategy um Mm. And as you mentioned, the the um, the goals within the strategy kind of fall five percent short of what, what is needed to hit the sixth carbon budget. Um, and, and 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 during the court proceedings, it emerged that there, there were some calculations by civil servants that quantified the impact of the cuts in the strategy, and, and that those didn't add up to the reductions necessary. But those figures weren't shared with Parliament or made available for public scrutiny. Mm. Um, and the, the the claimants argued that the those emissions meant that the Secretary of State could not discharge his personal duty to ensure that proposals and policies would achieve the targets. Yeah. Um, and and that, that absence of transparency undermined and impeded the role of Parliament in scrutinising strategy and the involvement of the public, and, and the court agreed with that argument. So what happens now then? And, and so that ruling was in July. It hasn't been appealed. So how long 
has the government got to improve things and 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 how specific was the judge about what they had to change well essentially they they've got to present a revised strategy by by march okay. 2023 so so it's interesting the government initially said it was going to appeal the decision but it, it confirmed in a letter to um the high court and the parties involved in the case um last month that it wouldn't it wouldn't appeal the decision so there's a bit of a, a climb down now so so i think the, the the question now is is what what does the government need to to do in order to address the the, the weaknesses mm. um, sort of found by the found by the judge, yeah, I think I think I don't know anything more specific. Obviously, it's got to be fleshed out for parliamentary and public scrutiny uh, soon. And I guess they have to include those quantifiable accounts of how mm. they how they're going to do it, which can only be a good thing. Um, but there have been a number of other criticisms levelled against the strategy that weren't necessarily things that were picked up by the the, the judge, um, but a number of uh, green groups and other journalists have, have picked up aspects as being weak can you can you say a bit about those yeah i think i think the um the 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 climate change committee so the the, the kind of watchdog that set set up to scrutinize government on on these issues that the, the, their view is that strategy is least robust or credible in policy areas including decarbonization of buildings aviation industry Agriculture and land use—so that's kind of quite a, quite, quite a big swing of the economy, <laughs> yeah. basically. Huge public accounts committee have also made those points. Uh, yeah, yes, and uh, obviously lots of NGOs. Um, and did UK One Hundred, which is that coalition of local authorities, I think they were particularly concerned about um, what's the mean scope three emissions, for which you know uh, the councils aren't directly responsible, and the kind of the definition of those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, th- I think that that's one of the concerns that, that's been been flagged that, that the strategy only takes into account domestic emissions, and, and that 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 could mean that as much as forty percent of the UK's total carbon footprint is being ignored in the form of kind of forgotten emissions from from imports. Yeah. So, so that's that's kind of big area. I think I think the going back to the, those kind of fairly major policy areas that, that agriculture is a really really big. Yeah concern there's no there's no target for cutting emissions from agriculture despite it being responsible for 10 percent of the the uk's emissions yeah so yeah there's, there's kind of quite a lot of um quite a lot of work and and and, and also just just given that it falls short short by five percent of what's actually needed to be cut that's actually mm. a huge amount of um your answer right here your answer's right there jamie you solved it <laughs> um well it's very good to see the climate change act being enforced i think that's um that's quite a refreshing thing. Not to say that it wasn't being enforced, but just to see it in action is is yeah. really great. And as you said, no one said the the strategy was completely terrible to begin with, but the fact that using this legislation, it's going to be improved. Um, that's all quite a lot of good news, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think it's definitely worth um, listeners taking a look at. We, we have a, a regular legal comment, um, and one of our legal commentators is, is Simon Tillings, and he's he's written a really good. Um, piece on the implication of this judgment and, and kind of make it, he makes the point that it shows the um it shows the teeth of the climate change act and i think i think the it was already kind of seen as a as a leading piece of, of environmental and climate yeah. legislation but actually it kind of really shows the degree of granular detail that, that the government needs to needs to provide in order to, to discharge the duties mm-hmm. and, and and when you think about the the kind of argument that, that that we're having at the moment around the targets in the environment act it shows that if we if we kind of get those right then then it'd be really good to be able to hold the governments of account in a similar way on those things as well well that's a 
A really good thought to end on. I think I think we should leave that there on that positive note. So that brings us to the end of our deep dive. And I'm going to hand over now to our Knowing Me, Knowing EU section with Simon Pixton and Alice Fillon. They're here to bring you, as ever, the latest on green policy from Brussels. And in this episode, they're looking at PFAS forever chemicals. Over to you, Alice and Simon. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, And this week, we're talking about uh, water pollutants and the zero pollution package. Exciting stuff. (laughs) It is indeed. So just give us the lowdown, Simon. What's the zero pollution package? So at at the end of November, the European Commission unveiled a series of reform proposals it wants to put in place for the key bits of EU water pollution legislation. So they have two separate proposals. The one which I think would be interesting to focus on today relates to lists of pollutants, contaminants in groundwater and surface water. Uh, the yeah. Commission keeps a list of a bunch of different chemical nasties. So these things like heavy metals, um, pesticide residue, various kinds of kind of brominated flame retardants and things like that, yeah. which basically enter the water through industrial pollution or agricultural pollution or urban wastewater runoff or whatever. The Commission recently adopted a proposal, not yet law, remember, which would update these lists. It slightly rejigs how these lists are organised and relating to groundwater and to surface water. So it's a pretty interesting read. It's classic EU problem solving in that they, the, the proposal took the form of an annex containing multiple other amended annexes. And then you had to sort of, for the yeah. lawyers, this is a nightmare because you've got to sort of scroll through the annex looking to which annexes are being amended through which other annexes. And it's it's uh, a little tricky. Okay, but in terms of, but for the lawyers, it's very straightforward yeah, 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 yeah. because <laughs> all of those substances are set up in annexes. Yeah. The issue here is that essentially there are so many cross-references that you end up having to open three or four different documents just to know what they're talking about in one provision. Welcome to my, welcome to my, uh, I mean, it's also your life, I suppose. Welcome to your world. <laughs> welcome to our world. <laughs> to our world, um, yeah. Anyway, the annexes for the nerds here can be found in the Water Framework Directive, the Groundwater Directive and the Environmental Quality Standards Directive, three big pieces of green legislation. Um and we saw basically the lists of surface water pollutants consolidated into a single annex. Yep. 70 harmful substances in total, of which 23 are new proposed additions. And the thing that headline sort of here is that this includes a lot of chemicals that you and I will have heard of and are probably in contact with on a regular basis. So things like the painkiller ibuprofen, yep. BPA, which is a plastic additive that you see everywhere, you might see in shops plastic products being advertised as BPA free. We've talked on previous episodes about why that's a potentially quite misleading label. Yes. Glyphosate, well known herbicide, you can buy yep. it from your local Steep. supermarket if you Active want. Active substance in Roundup. Oh, it was, it's no longer actually. Oh yeah, yeah, it was, but like famously. And then a group of 24 PFAS and uh for those unfamiliar with PFAS, they're pair and polyfluorinated alkyl substances. These are Used in all kinds of products that you might come into contact with. Famously, non-stick frying pans likely to con- contain a kind of PFAS. You can get it in waterproof clothing. You can yeah. get it in wiring. All, all kinds of uses. But what's interesting is that they're introduced as a group, right? They're of sorts. So they're, they're introduced as 24 yeah. 
separate PFAS. I mean, there's many thousands. The problem with PFAS is there are many, many yeah. thousands of compounds. Um, but this covers all of the most famous types. So PFOA, which you might, again, if you're in your supermarket or wherever, you might see things being advertised as PFOA-free. Again, misleading because that's one PFAS of many thousands. In all likelihood, it may be PFOA-free, but it's likely to contain, contain other Another kinds similar. of PFASs. <laughs> yes. PTFE, for instance, or whatever. Um, it also contains the, the EU's new list, more recently developed PFASs, including Gen X PFAS, which is HFPODA. Um, mm -hmm. And this has come into use much more recently. It's a shorter chain than than the older, more traditional okay. PFASs um, and has been introduced as a substitute for things like PFOA. Um, science seems to suggest it has many of the same properties so endocrine disrupting, That's, yeah, um, kind of the main one, but also kind of links to obesity, links to kind of um, reproductive problems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's quite a common problem with chemicals regulation, right? Like the replacing or the substituting of a problematic chemical with something that is functionally functionally is quite similar in its effects but just it's not been proven yet yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's yeah. the classic it's the classic environmental problem with chemicals regulation isn't it regrettable substitution yeah <laughs> so under this proposal by the commission you'd have targets for 2030 2040 2050 setting new maximum levels for ground and surface waters you know authorities national authorities would be required to test water bodies for these 70 compounds and and basically if they breach those limits and they you know like that's a black mark against them and they have to do something about that and are the targets quite ambitious or reasonably so i mean i, I think i think um the, the 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 green groups are still kind of working their way through um exactly the implications but for instance if you look at the pfas limits it's about 0 0.0044 micrograms per liter expressed expressed as PFOA equivalent, so expressed as the equivalent of this most most studied PFAS PFOA, yeah. which is banned under the Stockholm Convention. The Green Groups have noted that um, there's one PFAS, PFOS, which actually seems to appears to have a higher threshold in the new proposal than it does uh -huh. in existing legislation, but um, that's something I'm uh, yet to really get a clear answer on from the Commission. Okay, but broadly, the uh, thresholds are tend to be more stringent. And it's not just... For the new stuff, the, the commission's also for 16 chemicals that were already on the list. They've, all, they've actually tightened uh, most of those. Yeah, 14 out of the 16 have been made more stringent. Oh, yeah. okay. And then two of them have been less stringent if we're talking about the surface yeah, correct. water. One. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the substances that are subject to more stringent thresholds, that includes mercury, a lot of pesticides, PAHs. Polyaromatic um, hydrocarbons. Yep, and PBDEs. <laughs> I think you mean uh, polybrominated diphenyl ethers, don't you, Alice? <laughs> I do indeed. Uh, and then changes to the groundwater directive. There's few of them, and they are all additions, and the main one being, again, PFAS. But also, you briefly mentioned this, but one of the changes is that it aligns all the water directives to all use uh, environmental quality standards to define the list of the yeah. priority substances. Yeah, so it's a, it's a little bit of um, legislative simplification. Again, as always with the EU, you have a really complex mosaic of legislation that's been brought in over the last 30, 40 years. Yep. And so 
you've got various things kind of coexisting. It's just a means of harmonizing yeah. things so that it's a general framework and things can translate yeah. well across. Yeah. Um, another thing that's just worth mentioning quickly is, is that as well, microplastic pollution, which is becoming more and more of an issue, gets a mention in the new proposal. So it would be added to a watch list under the Environmental Quality Standards Directive as a potential pollutant for future regulatory action. Um, and as part of like a related regulatory proposal that the Commission published. Yeah, so that's the one recasting the Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive from 1991. I know, Matt. It's the first, and it's the first time that piece of legislation has been revised, which is um, which is mad, which is mad. I mean, and yet member states still routinely fail to meet the. Yeah, it's one of the main ones, right? Yeah, one of the main ones that yeah. member states are in breach of. So, under under the urban wastewater treatment directive, they'd be introducing something called extended producer responsibility for pharmaceutical companies and cosmetics companies, yeah. which would basically mean that member states would be obliged to come up with a system to make those two industries contribute financially to treating wastewater that's contaminated with microplastics so that's quite a big deal i mean and, yeah. and a, a potentially uh welcome step the water industry main main water industry body in brussels euro really thinks it's a great idea yeah they've been pushing for that for a long time yeah and it, it, i mean it stands to have a huge uh, impact it's, it's a huge incentive for uh, cosmetic companies and pharmaceutical companies to really uh, assess whether the substances that they use in their products are the ones that they need in there yeah. and whether there are any alternatives that basically means that they won't have to pay yeah. to treat i mean i think i think yeah, you you touch on the broad point here which is um as welcome as it is to set thresholds for ground and surface waters and clearly that's necessary actually the main change is going to be from tackling pollution upstream so that's making yeah. the industries that are the main polluters greener basically it's the polluter pay principle exactly exactly <laughs> if you stop the contamination getting into the water in the first place that's much better i mean i was speaking to euro earlier today about just just to hear their thoughts on the proposals and i mean that's basically their line is when it comes to pfas for instance pfas is extremely hard to get rid of from water and yeah. even once you've treated the water you end up with pfas it's waste and a side stream and that needs disposing of Generally, at the moment, the only way to do that is through high temperature incineration. That's extremely expensive. Um, also, not very climate friendly. Basically, their their line is the best thing would be simply to ban PFAS. And indeed, the EU is five EU member states are currently working on a proposal to make that make that a reality. We're going to probably see that proposal early next year. Okay. So, in terms of those uh, that zero pollution package, do we have a timeline? Now, those proposals will go to the European Parliament and the Council. Um, hard to say at this point how long it will take them to come up with their positions on those files before they then enter negotiations to come up with the final form. I think we can expect to see some some changes. We can probably expect to see the Parliament propose additional chemicals to add to, say, the ground and surface water yeah. pollutant lists. Um, but yeah, hard to say at this point how long it will take or what the final form of the of the of the legislation will look like. So I will just mention that uh, in the UK, there's not. Currently, any specific plans to do something uh, similar, but the Environment Act 2021 does include uh, powers to make regulations in relation to essentially sharing the cost of disposals of products and materials with producers. Um, so that, yeah, it would be a similar extended producer responsibility scheme. 
So the framework is there, but whether at this stage there is the political will uh, or readiness to do so is another matter. Well, if the UK is looking for inspiration, I guess it doesn't have that far to look. Back to you, Rachel. And that brings us to the end of this episode of The Eco Chamber. Thank you to Jamie Carpenter, Pippa Neal, Simon Pickstone and Alice Fillon. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to endsreport.com. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we will see you next time. <laughs>